Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Before we get started with today's episode, I want to tell you about something we have coming up on the show. We are close to wrapping season three of All the Wiser and taking a short break for the summer. We are also very close to May, which happens to be Mental Health Awareness Month. If you listen to this podcast, you know that I live with a mental illness called bipolar disorder. You also, if you have listened, probably know by now that it is something I hid for over two decades because I was deeply, deeply ashamed and embarrassed. I shared it for the first time on this podcast almost three years ago, and it has frankly gotten better ever since because it allowed me to release the weight of shame and secrecy which is officially no fun to carry around. That said, sharing my story and all of the nuances and intricacies and other pieces of it uh, is a process. There are still pieces of it that are difficult to talk to, but I do believe that in being fully honest, it allows you to be fully seen and heard And in turn, that provides comfort to others. I think it allows people to feel less alone in their own mental health journeys. And it also just provides, I think, education and awareness of what it truly looks like to live with bipolar disorder. So that said, we are wrapping season three and in honor of Mental Health Awareness Month, we are going to do an episode called Ask Me Anything. So you can ask me anything and I will answer it. I will be an open book in service of others. And yeah, I'm here for all of it. So there's a couple ways that you can submit your questions. You can DM us on Instagram at All The Wiser Podcast. You can email us at hello at allthewiserpodcast.com or my personal favorite, you can call and leave a voice memo or voice message, I should say, voicemail at 833-326-8623. That's 833-326-8623. We'll put this number in the show notes. We will also put it on Instagram. But yeah, you can leave us a voice message, email, or DM any question you have about living with bipolar. It can be medication. It can be management. It can be shame and secrecy. I can also speak with great experience about anxiety and panic and what that looks like. So if that is something you are struggling with, um, please ask, ask me anything. So whether it is a question that you have or a question on behalf of someone you love and care about, I hope you will submit it. We are taking questions for another week. 
You have until Wednesday, May 4th to ask me anything. So do it sooner rather than later. I would love to hear your voice. If you just want to say hi or you have a question about the show, we are going to read everyone. So please send it our way. Again, uh, you have seven days to send any question that you would like me to answer. And I'm going to repeat the number just because it's fun to say the number. It's 833-326-8623. Every day I would leave my home and I would go in the morning and pretend that it was coffee that was calling me. But, you know, it was coffee plus a enormous amount of heroin and, and opiates. Chris Heron was living a life that most can only dream of. He was a young husband and dad, and he was playing for the NBA, something he had trained for his entire life. And at 23 years old, he was doing it, all of it. But around this same time, he was introduced to OxyContin, which changed the course of his life forever. I'm spending around $20,000 a month on on OxyContin, the pill I'd never heard of. The pill that they refer to as hillbilly heroin is taking every single penny out of not only my pocket, but my family's pocket. Today on the show, we explore the relationship between addiction and the all-American pressure of expectations. Are we damaging our kids by focusing too much on their talent? This and more with our guest, former pro basketball player and recovery advocate, Chris Heron. I'm Kimmy Culp, and this is All the Wiser, a one-for-one podcast. My conversation with Chris was illuminating in so many ways, but it certainly struck a chord as a mother of three youngish kids, one a teenager, and the two feel like they are quickly on their way to becoming teenagers. And it also took me back as he talked about growing up and insecurities and fitting in and the role so often in high school that drugs and alcohol have and and fitting in and belonging and in masking, I think, the insecurities that we all remember well. But Chris's story was a great reminder of how high the stakes can be and that we tend to focus on the last day, the dramatic days at the end of addiction, and that really as a society and as parents, we should be thinking about the first day. Chris also was wonderful at reminding all of us about what truly matters and is an all-American athlete who was widely celebrated for his incredible athletic talents. He was really just a kid like all kids who wanted and deserved to be seen 
beyond his ability to perform and entertain on a court. Chris offers wonderful advice in this episode, including what he wished people would have asked him during the tender years of finding himself. He also talks about the power of language and his desire to eradicate the word rock bottom because no one should wait until rock bottom to ask for help. Sharing stories like the one you're about to hear is another step forward in lifting the veil of secrecy and shame when it comes to addiction and hopefully inspiring a more whole and hopeful future for generations to come. And now I bring you Chris Heron. Hello, Chris, and welcome to All the Wiser. Thank you for having me. Chris, I always like to have our guests introduce themselves. How would you introduce yourself? Oh, gosh. No, I'm a former professional basketball player that struggled with substance use for many years, which obviously not only impacted my my future, my my professional life, but also my personal life and, you know, my children, my wife, my family, all the people who love me. I want to start at the beginning and talk about your childhood. What can Mm -hmm. you tell me about the backdrop of your childhood? You know, when it comes to addiction, we focus on the worst day and, and forget the first day. And my first day began with watching my dad struggle. You know, his alcoholism was front and center in the middle of our family. My mom struggled with his drinking and what his drinking, how it impacted us. And there wasn't much time spent. Alcohol was a priority in his life. Alcohol trumped family often. So that was my introduction to alcohol to Miller Lights. Unfortunately, you know, the beer that I hated as a boy, I started drinking as a boy. You know, that was kind of the first major red flag that went up in my life. You know, at 13, 14 years old, drinking the beer that just completely broke my mom's heart. And, you know, I had many sleepless nights listening to her beg him to stop. And I started, and that was that was my first day. That was the beginning. And I know you grew up in Fall River, Massachusetts, and were a natural and incredible athlete, and in particular, basketball player. Mm-hmm. So, what role did basketball play in you know your adolescent going into teen years in Fall River? It probably played too big of a role. You know, it was definitely the focus in my life as a young boy, as a, as an adolescent, as a teenager, you know, basketball was too important, you know, not only to me, but our family, you know, sadly, I learned at a young age that if I played well, my family seemed to be happier. You know, their happiness was kind of dictated by my performance. You know, which the messaging there is, you know, play good and everything's going to be okay. Not only was I a good basketball player, but, you know, it it impacted a lot of people around me. And, you know, to be recruited at a young age, to be 14 and, and to be constantly observed and critiqued, you know, people don't understand that level of, of stress, of pressure, of anxiety as a boy. It's dismissed often. When kids talk about that process, like, oh, you're lucky, you know, you're going you're to get a full scholarship. But the reality is I had to play for three and a half years in front of adults. 
When I've heard you talk about it and and Fall River at this time, basketball really meant something and you were a star. And how I experienced at least was the amount of pressure. And I heard you say on the exterior is this All-American recruited Mm -hmm. by every college in the country on the newspapers and inside is a young boy who is so anxious and insecure he can't even hang out in a basement with 20 kids and feel comfortable in his own skin. Well, 100%. That's just a different question, right? I mean, for me, I say this often. I mean, I could play in front of 4,000, 5,000 people at 15, but I couldn't hang out with four of my best friends that I went to kindergarten with. You know, that's a problem. You know, talking about basketball being so central and celebrated in Fall River, there was a book written about you and your team as teenagers called Forever Dreams, and seven of the 15 players ended up being heroin addicts. Is that right? Yeah. So Fall River Dreams, you know, I was 16 years old when I was asked if I would, you know, take part in this. And the writer, Bill Reynolds, is, you know, became a dear friend of mine. You know, we were young kids growing up in a middle-class town that used to be a thriving mill city that played in front of, again, 4,000, 5,000 people, that basketball was the center of our city. It kind of made the city feel good. It was the heartbeat. You know, it was the place to be on Tuesdays and Friday night was the Durfee High School basketball gym. And we grew up in this culture that getting drunk and going into bar rooms at 16, 17 and you know, it was kind of a badge of honor. And it was what kids kind of were supposed to do, I guess. And unfortunately, half my basketball team struggled immensely. I mean, you know, as you said, seven out of the 15 heroin. I think there's a couple of cocaine. I can't think there's a couple of alcoholics also in that mix. So I think it would be higher than seven out of 15. Yeah, it's something you speak really eloquently about. The introduction of alcohol and drugs in the teenage years and this notion that it's sort of a rite of passage to hang out in the woods with your friends, right? Drinking and it's innocuous, but you have no idea who will pay the price later, you know, for decades. Yeah, for decades. And, And sadly, right? I mean, people get a little perplexed by this, but I'm so grateful that it was heroin for me because at a young age, I had no choice. Like it was get sober or die. I mean, that's really what it was. It was written all over the walls. I mean, it was, you're either going to get healthy or you're going to, you're going to lose your life. And, you know, unfortunately, alcohol, you know, I have friends that are still struggling and they're in their mid forties and hopefully not, but, you know, alcohol catches you usually between the age of 35 and 55. And, you know, I have a bunch of childhood friends that I drank with in those basements and in the woods that are currently you know, their lives are a struggle because of it. So it began with beer, as you said, your dad's beer of choice in high school. And when do drugs arrive on the scene, become a part of your your life? Yeah, drugs arrived probably right around the same time as alcohol, right? Marijuana. You know, I was probably 13, 14 years old when I first started and when I tried it. It didn't become a regular thing in my life until I was probably in my junior, senior year of high school. And throughout high school, occasionally, you know, someone would say, hey, we have Vicodins or we have a Percocet. 
And, you know, my friends and I would break them in half and take it. But it really wasn't into college until I understood, right? And, you know, at 18 years old, as a college athlete, you're subjected to drug testing and you have to live on campus to a higher standard than most students. And when I realized that I had to pass a drug test at 18 years old regularly, I realized how, and I don't like the word, but just how important, how significant substances were in my life because, you know, I struggled being myself 24-7. And that's when it really became evident at 18 that I have very little ability to just be myself. So you're an All-American. You were recruited by all the top programs, top you know D1 schools in the country. I know you decide to go to Boston College. Your parents are getting divorced and you want to stay close to your mom. But that is very short-lived, your time there. Can you explain why what's happening? You're recruited to Boston playing basketball and how is the usage scaling at this point? Yeah, I mean... It seemed like the right place. In hindsight, it was really tough for me emotionally to disconnect from the city I grew up in. But at 18 years old, on the campus of Boston College, I was introduced to cocaine. And unfortunately, I have very little ability, if none, to do it in moderation. And I was subjected to the drug testing, and that came up positive at 18, and it completely you know, broke my, my family's heart because they realized really quickly that their McDonald's All-American son can't abstain. You know, he can't stay away. And you juxtaposed sort of a day in the life of these two identities that you were huge spread, Sports Illustrated. You're at an all-day shoot. So, you know, the cameras, the whole thing, you're doing the photo shoot on the trampoline, and then that night you're raging yeah, snorting cocaine and sort of these dueling identities. So that was really, as a visual person, a really clear snapshot of, of your time at Boston College for me. Just sad, right? Sad and lonely. You know, it's really hard to manage those two identities. I had to play the All-American a few hours out of the day, and, and then I struggled severely with addiction at night. You know, for a while, people kind of gave me this like rock star type status, like you can do both, which is, you know, amazing. But, you know, physically at that age, I was able to manage both. But the toll that I was taking emotionally was just, sadly, it was it was so significant and big. The failed drug test yeah. catch up with you. And it sounds like Boston College was really you know, you've compared the approach and we're going to talk about you going to Fresno after leaving Boston. You're there for just a few months. These really two different approaches mm -hmm. to your addiction and one was really punitive and the other was, was much more compassionate. So the punitive and the failing the drug test has you quickly leave Boston College and you go cross country to play for Fresno, which I know was really instrumental in particular mm -hmm. a coach who helped sort of shape you there. So what happens when you arrive at Fresno on a new coast, you know, somewhat of a fresh start, new chapter? 
I mean, it was there was a lot of running away that was attractive. You know, I'm going to get 3,000 miles away from a lot of embarrassment, humiliation that I had just faced as three months before. Unfortunately, that baggage comes with you. You know, it traveled with me. And, you know, I was able initially at Fresno to kind of to abstain and just kind of be dormant. But, you know, once I found my my bearings and was introduced to more people and kind of became part of the community, I found it again. And, you know, they were, Fresno was so, so different. You know, when, when that problem, it became apparent that I was still struggling and that the move 3,000 miles away didn't help. They threw everything at me to help me. And, and again, that was much different than BC. BC was more of a, you know, three strikes, you're out, very punitive approach. You know, it was almost like they were baffled that, you know, I, I could fail more than one, where Fresno immediately introduced me to Alcoholics Anonymous, to people in the community who were sober, as well as therapists and IOP and, and eventually to inpatient treatment. And is it working? It is, right? I mean, is it 100%? It isn't, right? But again, it, once I was introduced to it, I never forgot it. My partying was different from that day forward. When you have the knowledge of an education of, of what addiction is and some of the things that I struggled with, you know, the nights and, and the mornings felt a lot different than they did prior. How so? Because I knew I had a problem. I couldn't duck that, right? I, I knew, I knew I, I had substance use disorder, right? I knew that it just, it, it was never the same again. There was the sadness attached to my use. And you've described this sort of innate knowing, and I'm curious about the language of mm-hmm. an innate belief in a darkness ahead. Is that right? Oh gosh, yeah. That shadow was cast over me for many years. I just knew one day it was all going to fall apart, you know, and and when you're trying to present and manage this beautiful life with, you know, really high ceilings and, you know, endless future. So eventually you were drafted Mm -hmm. to the NBA, 33rd pick in the draft for the NBA, and you would end up moving to Denver to play for the Denver Nuggets. I believe it was this chapter in your life where you were introduced to prescription drugs. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So talk to me about leaving Fresno, starting to play an NBA, and how prescription drugs are now introduced to your life. I was introduced to them at a very low level in, in high school, but when I was playing in the NBA, I was introduced to OxyContin, and I had never heard of that word. Right. I mean, it wasn't in the headlines. Shortly after I became addicted to it, it started to get referred to in in the media as hillbilly heroin. It was tracked and traced in West Virginia and Kentucky. And that was the drug that I was taking on a daily basis, hillbilly heroin. And the amounts you were taking. Yeah, yeah. I mean, listen, I I took forty a forty milligram pill, my first time ever taking it. It was a 40 milligram pill. It was this little yellow pill and and I took it. And I was told like it's going to be really powerful and it's it's like taking five or six Percocets at once. 
you know, I dismissed that and I, I swallowed it and that decision changed my life forever. I went from, you know, 40 milligrams to 1600 milligrams a day. That's 1080s in the morning and 1080s at night all at once. And, you know, what that kind of, it puts me in a position to where I'm spending around $20,000 a month on, on Oxycontin, the pill I'd never heard of. The pill that they refer to as hillbilly heroin is taking every single penny out of not only my pocket, but my family's pocket. And let's talk about your family because you do have a family and a loving wife. And at this mm-hmm. time, by now, you're you're a father. And again, this this dual identity on the outside. I mean, you're an NBA, young NBA player with a wife and child and the house and the new car, all of that. So, so what is, you know, the outside world experiencing your life? And just tell me a little bit about that side. I think most 23-year-olds kind of want that. You know, most kids dream of playing in the NBA. So, you know, from the outside, it was like, you know, not only did he overcome his demons, but he was able to get back on track and play in the NBA. And now on top of that, you know, he's a husband and a dad, you know, he's able to provide this, this beautiful life, not only for himself, but his, his young, small family, but that's not the truth. I was taking it and I was risking it and I was putting everyone around me in jeopardy. And, you know, I was hostage to my home because, you know, we invested our money and every month we'd get a report and I wouldn't leave the house until the mailman came because I needed to get that report. I needed to rip it up, to burn it, to get it away so nobody can see how sick I am. But then, you know, my wife opened the mail one day. I didn't catch the mailman. And, you know, here she is, 23 years old, young mom. You know, she finds out that I just burnt through 250000 of our money over a year and a half stretch and that there was really nothing left in the bank. I know you were in Denver and you end up having the opportunity to go play for the Boston Celtics. And mm-hmm. I've heard you describe that as a dream come true and a nightmare beginning. Mm-hmm. And talk about the pressure, right? Now the hometown hero boy comes to play for the Celtics, right? Yep. And that I've heard you just explain the insanity of the hold that Oxy had on you at that point and how tied to your playing it was. Shipping ahead Oxy all over the country to Ritz and Four Seasons and waiting for the package and waiting dealers outside the stadium. Mm -hmm. So what does that insanity look like? What does that hold look like? Oh, it's just sheer panic, right? 24-7. Again, it's it's to keep the, the secret, you know, to avoid the shame and not let anybody see the struggle. And, you know, when you are taking any amount of Oxycontin, you know, the withdrawal is, is brutal. And, you know, when I tell the story, people who aren't familiar with opiates, they're just blown away by it that, you know, I was outside the arena before games waiting for my, my drug dealer, that there was a couple of nights that I was in my warmups because I was that close, you know, it was cut that close that he didn't get there right before the game started, you know, and then 
you know, every single week prepping, you know, seeing I'm going on a Texas road trip and in the NBA, you play the Houston Rockets, the Dallas Mavericks, and you travel all over Texas and, you know, to make sure they're at the hotels waiting for me, you know, that I I would put them in packages and ship them. And I would be up at five o'clock in the morning because say FedEx, it was a 10 a.m. guarantee. And I would, I'd literally stare out the window just waiting for the FedEx truck to come because the sickness and the obsession, you know, was so, was so profound. And eventually you leave the NBA and move to Italy. Why do you leave the NBA and, and how do you end up in Italy? I mean, I think I leave the NBA for many reasons, right? I think I wasn't good enough physically. You can't play at that level struggling with drug addiction. Eventually, it's going to catch you. I mean, some people are better at it than others. But, you know, I was, I'm a 6'2 white kid. You know what I mean? I, I wasn't blessed with unbelievable athletic ability. And I needed every ounce of myself to be invested into that professional career if I was going to be able to sustain it. And I wasn't willing, and nor was my addiction. So I was released. And I could have fought harder. You know, I could have tried to stay and stick somewhere else. But again, 3,000 miles sounded like a solution. And, you know, if I could get far away, maybe I'll have a chance at this. You know, I moved to Italy with the intent that I was going to get off OxyContin. I smuggled in a bunch of drugs. I had this really responsible taper that I would cut down every day. Unfortunately, I'm not wired to taper. And I took the drugs as I was taking them prior to leaving Italy. And I ran out relatively quickly. And that's when I turned to heroin. I was introduced to heroin in Italy because that was the only drug that was going to fix this withdrawal that I was going through with OxyContin. Yeah. So Oxy, you've said is just heroin in a pill. So the Oxy's Mm. gone and now you start shooting up heroin. Correct. Sniffing first, but then yes, eventually turning into, you know, injecting. Again, your wife, a lot of the money from the NBA and your finances are being drained by your drug use. And your wife is now aware In 2004, she has a baby on the way and you OD. Can you tell me about that story? In 2004, I woke up in the morning and I was going to meet my drug dealer. Dunkin' Donuts in this town was, you know, one of the parking lots that he would he would deliver to. Were you back in the States or were you in Italy at this time? No, I was in I was in the States. Okay. And, you know, every day I would leave my home and I would go in the morning and pretend that it was coffee that was calling me. But, you know, it was coffee plus, you know, a enormous amount of heroin and, and opiates. Like every day I'd done in the past, I sat in that parking lot and I purchased my heroin and I shot it. And normally I would stop my car and back out and get in the drive-thru and order for my family, you know, and, and for me and my wife. And I'd walk back in that house with two coffees in my hand and some munchkins for my kids, but this day was different. I just felt this feeling I had never felt before shooting up, and it was confusing. I was not aware of really the overdose, right? I didn't think that I would ever do enough to kill me, and 
I was in the drive-through and I, I overdosed and I took my foot off the brake and I bumped the lady in front of me, which alerted her to get out of her car. And she saw me slumped over the wheel and they called the ambulance. And once they opened that door and pulled me out, they saw, you know, empty bags of heroin and, and syringes in my car. So that day not only changed my life, it changed everybody who loved me. From that day forward, no one was ever going to be the same again. And it was in the papers. Yeah, yeah. It was all over. It was in the news. It was in the papers. It was, it was a lead story. It was a big story. The caption in the Boston Herald, I believe, I was, you know, it's me playing for the Celtics and it's what a shame is the headline. And, you know, thankfully, I don't think that headline, I don't think the person who makes the headlines could attach that particular headline to someone overdosing anymore. But what a shame is, is it was, uh, it was, it was heartbreaking for, for everybody. And how old were you at this time? I was mid twenties. And your wife, Mm. did she, you know, threaten to leave or, or how do you, I mean, I, I think it, you know, this hits people so fast, you know, nobody plans, nobody foresees it. It hits people so fast. It stuns them right? It almost stops them in their tracks. And, you know, my wife was raising young children and and now all of a sudden she's living in this world that her husband has heroin, not only an addiction, but has been using it, hiding it in her home. So, you know, I can't speak for her, but I can only imagine what it was like to look at people that loved her, friends, family, and have to explain to to them that her husband has a problem and and she's going to stick it out. She's going to stay with it. You know, it's not an easy explanation, but, you know, my addiction made my wife, and again, I don't want to speak for her, but I believe, right, that my addiction made my wife very sick, you know, and, and unfortunately, when you live in that world and the worse it gets, days fly by. You know, because you just you just living to get to the next day. You know, you have barely have enough money for gas. You barely have enough money for food. You just want to get to the next day, and you know that next day. You know, was seven years before you know I was able to get sober. So, and that was when you were thirty-two, and you attribute you know part of that to a challenge or an exercise that a therapist gave you. Hmm. Can you share that? Yeah. So, you know, I'm sure it wasn't something he learned, you know, getting his his degree in therapy or social work or whatever. But he told me to play dead because I was in the treatment center and I had just suffered my fourth overdose. I was suicidal. I was so ashamed. Right. Like I just I'm 32 years old and I'm it's 11 o'clock in the morning and I've been drinking vodka. And I jump in my car to meet a drug dealer and I'm just going to do it quick because I have to get back to get my kids off the school bus when they get home at two and I'll be ready for them when they get home. So I flew to Fall River, I shot the heroin and boom, I overdosed. And I overdosed while driving. So my car crashed. I woke up in the back of an ambulance and shortly after I was in a hospital and discharged and I I said to myself, I was going to kill myself that day. You know, I have to kill myself because my wife's 
seven and a half, eight months pregnant and Christopher and Samantha. Christopher's nine and Samantha's seven. And I can't face them. I can't explain to my wife that, you know, get ready because tomorrow the headlines are going to be, I overdosed again. So I thought of ending my life. And I had this nurse at the hospital who intervened, you know, perfect timing. She told me that she knew my mom and my mom had died at a young age from cancer. Um, And she said, I'm going to give you the help today because your mom's asking me to. She really wants me to support you and hug you and hold on to you. So why don't you come back in here? And I did. And she held me and she, she supported me and she hugged me and she found a place for me to go. And while I was in that detox center, I got a phone call that I had another opportunity and that was to go to a place in New York. And it was long term. You know, I hadn't been in a, in a rehab since 1997. And, you know, here I am going back and I was there for 45 days. And my wife said that I called her and she was, she was going into labor and I, jumped on the van and went to the train station against the advice of all people at that treatment center. I went and I wanted to hold her hand. I wanted to see my little son come into this world sober. I'd never been sober for a birth and I believed in myself. I believed that I could handle it and I couldn't. You know, I relapsed. I met with my children. They were emotional prior. My son said some things to me that to this day, shake me, you know, how much he loves me and how much he needed me. And at 32 years old in a hospital room with a newborn baby, my wife in bed and my two children, I just felt, I felt like I didn't belong there. I was adding nothing to their life. If anything, I was just taking, you know, I was constantly taking from them. I was constantly letting them down, constantly putting my children in a position of fear, zero stability. So I walked out of the hospital that day and I, and I, and I bought vodka, drank it, started on heroin again. And the next day I walked into the hospital and my wife took one look at me and she said, you can't stay here. I was no longer welcome that she needs to put herself and our children first, that she's tired of getting her heart broken. And now the kids are getting their heart broken. So she gave me an ultimatum and said, you go back to treatment or don't ever come back to me again. We can't fix this. And I went. And when I checked back in, the counselor was aware that I had relapsed. He had talked to my wife and he called me into his office and he told me that I should play dead for my family, that let's fake your death. Let's tell your kids that their daddy got into a car accident. He didn't make it. And let Heather Christopher, Samantha, and Drew start over because, you know, your wife's a smart girl and she's not going to make the same mistake twice. And the kids deserve a better dad in their life. And, um, it was something that I thought of often. You know, those were, you know, that was what was on my pillow at night now that I should get away, that they were better off without me. But I never really heard anybody say that out loud to me. So. It hit me and I walked back to my room in that treatment center and I, I dropped to my knees at the edge of my bed and I thought of my mom and, and I started praying. And that was, that was my beginning. That was, that was the first page of, of recovery. And that's where it all began for me. And 
how many years has it been? Coming up on 14. Congratulations. Yeah. What have been the most powerful, the most healing pieces or things in your recovery? You know, it's, it's, it's interesting you say that because I am coming up on 14 years and two weeks ago, I'm sitting in the kitchen, I'm at the counter and my wife is standing doing her thing somewhere in the kitchen and my oldest, Christopher, we started talking and, you know, somehow my past got brought into it and it was the first time I ever made an amends to him. I told him how sorry I was. You know, I got detailed and specific. How old is he now? I was 23. Yeah. And um, he never, it's the first time I've made an amends to any of my children. I cried uncontrollably. You know, once I started the amends, I couldn't get it out of my system. I, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't stop crying. And he cried with me. And we both, connected our foreheads together and hugged each other and, you know, cried really hard for about 10 minutes. And, you know, the only thing I could get out during that cry was, I'm so sorry. That is really powerful. And thank you for sharing that. And I'm happy for both of you that you had that Mm. moment. Mm. Beautiful. I mean, you know, it's, it was not overdue. You know, I think I think when you make an amends, you live an amends. You know, I don't think there's anything better than a living amends, right? It's it's my action and what I'm doing on a daily basis to never bring them back physically or emotionally is a beautiful amends. But just at 23 years old and some of the things he's been through in his life and some of the things that we've been through together, it was time. And I don't think anybody was expecting it. I wasn't expecting it. It just came out and you know, we shared probably one of the most powerful moments I've ever had in my recovery. And for someone who's, you know, been living in recovery for almost 14 years, uh, you just never know when those moments are going to happen. And and I'm very, very grateful. I had a question about you say that there's no past tense to recovery. Mm -hmm. And that's such a clear illustration of that point, right? That that is, it sounds like uh, one of the most powerful moments in your recovery and it's just happening recently. Yeah. You know, that's the beauty of recovery, right? Everything's in the rear view. And one day at a time, you, that life, that pain, that struggle, it's one day away, one day further away. And, you know, now, you know, 14 years, I look in the rear view and I still see it, but it's just not as clear. You know, it's not as profound as it once was. I never want to lose sight of of my past because I believe that that inspires me and and empowers me to to get after it today and not take anything for granted. I never want to see that look on my children's faces again. You know, we talk on this podcast about this notion, and and sometimes I think it sounds cliche. In, in your mm-hmm. case, it's so true of turning your pain into your purpose or making Mm -hmm. mess of your meaning, right? There's all these different ways to say the same thing. But you have built a career, a life's work, a business, and both Heron Talks and Heron Wellness. Mm -hmm. So I I do want to just touch on both of those briefly as, as we end the interview. 
So Heron Talks, as you said, you really are on the front lines and having these conversations with teenagers, which is where, right, the conversations need to happen. And this idea of the first day and that we so often see the dramatic picture of the heroin addict on the street, but the first day is the critical one and the one to think about. So I'm curious about what you're hearing and seeing from these kids. And I also want you to give parents advice because you give some really pointed and clear advice about parents, you know, when their kids come home, you know, having been drinking or taking drugs, which, you know, there's a lot of experimenting in high school. So I guess it's a two-part question. So first, what are you hearing from these kids? I think, you know, the way I pivoted and started communicating with the kids allowed them to identify with my story. You know, the battle of self-esteem and self-worth, expectations and pressure, and how you handle that, how you cope with it. And, you know, nobody really wants to talk about the beginning because, you know, every parent wants to believe that what they've done for their children is enough. They've prepared them and they tell them they love them and and they they work really hard and give them things. So that should be enough for their self-esteem and self-worth. To me, it's glaringly obvious that, you know, I'd say 90% of the parents in America that catch their kids drinking and smoking for the first time, they don't ask them why. They want to focus on where they got it, who bought it for them, when did they do it, and, and who were they with, and what did they consume, rather than just a simple why. And parents don't ask why. And, and that's, it's really sad, you know, because that child has a why. It can be so many different answers and layers to it, but, you know, oftentimes their self-esteem, their self-worth wasn't where they wanted it to be. And, you know, that peer pressure got the best of them. And they're not the leader that their parents believe them to be. They don't have that ability to, to walk away that the parents thought they had. And then there's the children out there that say, unfortunately, you know, my parents encouraged me to, to get drunk in high school and, and smoke with my friends because they don't want to lose their social circle and they don't want me to lose my social circle, which, you know, is really sad. And, you know, when I do community events, I often talk about, you know, the parents that allow children to drink in their home, in their basement. You know, there's, there's a, a good number of parents out there that allow open their doors on a Friday night and say kids can get drunk here because it's safe. I just think it's it's really bizarre to me that a dad or a mom want to put their family in that situation and put themselves in that situation. Make it hard for kids. Make it hard for them to get drunk, to smoke marijuana. Don't make it easy for them. The parents, you know, they hover over homework. They go to all their basketball games, their sport outings, support them artistically in the theater, and they show up to all the events. And But they, they're really needed on Friday night, and they're really needed on Saturdays. You know, when kids are going out, they need their mom and dad to, to give them a hug and say, listen, you can do this. And no matter what, I'll be up waiting for you, and, and I want you to be able to do this not sober, right? Because I and and I don't want I don't want to lose my. I never told my kids to be sober. I just wanted them to have self esteem to get through the night without it. Well, I think of you as 
a boy and how is society, you know, the savant, the fee, you know, the phenom, how mm-hmm. celebrated and hyper-focused we are about these kids, right? Mm-hmm. But really you couldn't cope with right. aspects of your humanness and your family and your father's and that wasn't seen, right? Only this your just sheer athletic talent was right. you know so much focus on that and i think what i'm hearing you say is these kids are whole beings right and yeah. don't overlook it you know and there's a lot of there's a lot of layers you know and i tell parents that all the time like you know yeah your kids are phenomenal in the classroom and their sat scores are great and you know they're scoring thousands of points and they're getting a ton of goals but don't overlook them you know there's there's other other factors to this and that's why it just really, I just wish I had told somebody say, like, be a pro at being you, right? Like, forget the, you know, go to the NBA, Chris, but like, conquer yourself, like, be a pro at being yourself. And that's challenging at 13 and a half years sober, you know, like, people say, like, do you ever want to relapse? And my answer is the days I don't want to be me, you know, I mean, I have days where I look in the mirror and I don't like what I see and I struggle with my esteem and I struggle with my self-worth. And thankfully for 13 and a half years, I've, I've been able to, to fight that fight and battle that battle, you know, armed with the appropriate coping skills. So I want to talk about hair and wellness. And I love that the word wellness <laughs> language is so powerful. And I know language around addiction and recovery is something you're, you're passionate about changing. So what makes hair wellness, what it is, unique and special and dynamic? Gosh, I think there's multiple reasons. And I just wanted to provide what what most centers say they provide, but they don't. I don't call them patients, right? I call them guests. They're guests of heron wellness. There's no lanyards. There's no identification. We're all the same. You know, we're all in the same playing field together in the process. You know, there's a lot of holistic support. It's yoga and meditation every day. Um, I have a personal trainer there five days a week in the gym that's developing, you know, some sort of track for you while you're there to get healthier. You know, we have acupuncture three days a week, massage therapy twice a week, hyperbaric chamber that our guests have access to all week. Of course, have Alcoholics Anonymous, 12-step program, but I also have refuge recovery and I have smart recovery. I just want to give people every option, right? Because not everyone gets sober the same. Not everybody recovers the same. And some might find great esteem and joy in, in yoga and working out and supported by a therapist, not AA 24-7 all the way. So, so my thing was to just intro them to, to as many things as possible to see what makes them feel better and can support them long-term. Family is a huge component. I think the treatment world has gotten away with drop them off at the front door and come back 30 days later. I don't believe in that. Our families are there every weekend. You know, we have, for instance, right now, we currently have a mom who has two young children and she's suffering from alcoholism. And she's been there for 45 days. And she's now at the point that I want her to go home on weekends 
and she spends the weekend with her children. And then she resets and comes back on, on Sunday night and we go through the week together. And then she'll be back home on the weekend with her children again. I think the kids and the family don't need to be completely disconnected. And I don't think it's relevant to everybody's story. So it's a special place. Well, you must just witness human transformation. and It's beautiful. Yeah. You got a front row seat to it, right? Like, who, who, you can't pay for that. <laughs> like, you know, I watch, I watch moms pull up crying, devastated. And then, you know, a month later, they're running to the door to drop something off to their daughter and can't wait to see her when she gets out of group. And yeah, just beautiful transformations. I'm sure some heartbreaking moments, but what do you think we get wrong about addiction as a country? You know, I think there's not a timeline on it. I don't know where it came from, but, you know, five-day detox, 28-day program, 90-day IOP. Like, I just don't understand the numbers. You know, everyone can't detox in five days and everyone can't recover in 28 days. You know, oftentimes people are still in the detox withdrawal phase, you know, 22 to 26 days into treatment. And now they're expected to leave four days later. So I don't like the numbers that are attached to it. I don't like some of the language. I think the word rock bottom has done so so much damage to the recovery world. There is no reason to wait. There is no reason for someone's whole life to fall apart, for the wheels to come off before there's a response. And I think rock bottom has prevented so many early interventions. What do you hope people take away from your story? You know, I'm just one of millions, right? Like just a guy living one day at a time. You know, for years, the narrative was that I was a loser. And I'm saying from my my own narrative that there was, I got to a point that I didn't even see value in recovering because there was nothing I will be able to accomplish in life. And it's the furthest thing from the truth. And I tell people this all the time. It's, you know, people in recovery have such an amazing advantage on life. Like it's like a cheat code for life, you know, because we're better emotionally, physically, spiritually, and we're unbelievably empathetic and, you know, highly motivated. So recovery and sobriety is an unbelievable advantage in life. And I, and I try to explain that to especially the younger adults who come through my program. Chris, thank you for showing up for this conversation today. And you're just wonderful and bravely and vulnerably sharing your journey with me and our listeners. And I appreciate it. I appreciate it as well. It was um, it was great. It was therapeutic. <laughs> I just went for a meeting. <laughs> so I appreciate your time and I appreciate you giving me a platform to share it. Thank you. So, lightning round with Chris Heron. Favorite childhood cereal? Captain Crunch. Maybe Cinnamon Life. Cinnamon Life. Something you are grateful for? My children. Binge-worthy show? Oh, gosh, I'm so good at this. Binge-worthy, there's so many, but... I mean, Ozark, obviously. But if you really want to take it a little deeper, try The Bureau. It's a French television show. It's phenomenal. Favorite book? Mm, Alcoholics Anonymous. Best piece of advice you've ever been given? You can't be helped if you're not heard. Wonderful. Well, thank you again, Chris. Thank you so much. Okay, take care. 
Today's episode supports the Heron Project. We stand behind Chris and his effort to give the gift of addiction recovery and prevention to families in crisis. You can check out pictures of Chris and learn more about the Heron Project at heronproject.org. If you don't follow us already on Instagram, head on over now. We're at All The Wiser Podcast, and you will get a dose of uplifting inspiration in your social feed. Tune in next week for A Little Wiser, where we dive in deeper and break down this episode you just heard. And finally, give yourself a break today. Show yourself some compassion for everything you have going on in your life right now and how hard you work to keep it all together. You are doing great. All the Wiser is produced by Erica Gerard at Podkit Productions. Our sound engineer is Kelly Kramerick, and our associate producer is Tara Daigle. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.